I'm Paul Gilroy. I'm the director of the Sarah Parker Remond Centre for the Study of Racism and Racialization at University College London. And my guest this morning is Alondra Nelson, president of the uh, Social Science Research Council in the US and Harold F. Linden, chair in social science at the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton. Alondra Nelson is a leading scholar of science and technology and social inequality. She's written The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations and Reconciliation After the Genome, and also another landmark publication, really very influential work, Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party in the Fight Against Medical Discrimination, Genetics and the Unsettled Past. And she's, over a long period of time now, been tracking the intersections and collisions of DNA, race and history, though she has, of course, broader interests in the social study of science, medicine and technology. Now, should I say anything else about you, Alondra, or is that sufficient? That's plenty. Okay, good. Just checking in case there's anything you wanted me to mention. No, no, thank you. I, I, thought we should, I thought we should begin, really, by just talking about how these two different crises have become articulated together. The crisis around COVID-19, the, the pandemic, and the crisis around the violence of the state, not only in America, where the death, the murder of George Floyd is the latest in a long, unholy sequence of crimes stretching back many, many, many decades, many, many years. I know that there are unique and particular factors that explain how that process has operated in the United States. But this country also has a long sequence of official indifference and cruelty and violence and impunity with regard to crimes against the lives and well-being of black and brown people in, in the UK. So this isn't a unique thing. And when we look at the amazing unfolding of protests across the world, actually, not just in the overdeveloped countries, not just in the global north, but in the south and everywhere you look, this incredible response. I, I suppose I, I was thinking about how the two crises have been connected. I was very surprised in a way when the information about George Floyd being someone who had had the virus came out I assumed at that point, and this is clearly wrong, that that would become a factor in the explanation of why he had died. I was so cynical, I suppose, that I was expecting that to be trotted out as a justification for his murder at the hands of those police officers. So how do you feel about the way these two things have intersected, come together so tightly? Uh, yeah, that's the question for this moment. And thank you for posing it because I, for you know, two decades now, have had the benefit of trying to talk through complicated things with you. And I'm glad to have this opportunity to do so. So I think I would rephrase the question a little bit by saying that these crises have been now visibly articulated. They've always been articulated. It's, it's not that COVID-19 arised and police brutality and state oppression went away, but it, in the same way that you know, the, the video cameras, the, the phone cameras sort of bring into emergence for moments things that we already know. I think similarly, COVID-19 and the, the sort of global pandemic nature of it and also the global economic collapse and the global sort of repercussions at scale for everyone almost simultaneously, at least in a lot of kind of large cities and the quote unquote West sort of brought it all to bear, I think, at once. But, you know, I think we've known that Black movements for a very long time have understood 
health movements, health inequality, discrimination in healthcare, what we now call racial health disparities, to have everything to do with institutions of total social control. You know, violence on black, meted out on black bodies happened not only in jails and prisons, but also in hospitals and in clinical research. And so, you know, I think that what this moment has brought to bear is a kind of visibility around the articulation. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it's worth noting the particular circumstances. And I think people like me who've thought about social movements and in, in our work, you know, in the Black Panther Party uh, more recently, the movement for uh, reparations for, for slavery, are always thinking about these kind of precipitating forces, this kind of question of why now. And it's worth thinking, we, as a, I think, as we think about the global scale, about the fact that there were already kind of social movements against inequality happening all over the world. So we had the sort of protests against the try to attempt to roll back pensions in Spain. We had people protesting in Chile, supposedly about the increase in, I think, a subway fare, protests in Beirut. And so I think the kind of conditions of possibility for a sort of global protest were already there. And then it becomes, what is the forcing function or the precipitating thing? And I think because COVID-19 is not just a healthcare crisis, but also an economic collapse, that it allowed a kind of sewing together of real despair and real inequality across boundaries and borders, and indeed across an attempt at xenophobia and kind of hard nationalism all over the world. And so there was, a, I think, a Pollyannish gesture early on in the COVID epidemic, you know, the kind of we're all in it together, you know, germs, no, no, viruses, no, no boundaries sort of thing. But I, I think it did speak to a larger kind of community of fate or shared linked fate of suffering that might have different dimensions, but is widely shared given growing inequality. So, you know, that's a long-winded answer, but it's really, I think, only made visible things that have been long articulated and that certainly in people's lived experience, working people's lived experience, middle-class people's lived experience, and in what we know of the history of social movements, these things have gone together. Absolutely. But I still think the question of why now needs to be um, pushed a a little bit more. I mean, the people who've been organizing, many of the young people who've been organizing our protests here, I'm sure you saw the extraordinarily moving rolling of Edward Colston's statue in in Bristol yesterday. Many of these people are very, very young. Many of them have not been to university. Many of them are, I don't know, even know how to periodize their relationship with communications technologies of one kind or another. So I, I don't want to lodge the novelty only there, but I still think we have to know why now we'll speculate about that. And I, I wonder too if the fact that they are not at risk of the disease in some ways, although there may be, well be their communities are and so on, how that enters into their ability to act politically and demand and speak in public and occupy public space and so on. You know. Oh, I think that's exactly right. I guess I've been struck by by COVID-19 as someone who's thought about HIV AIDS. You know, it really took us 20 years or something to really understand it. So I would say they're being told that they're not at risk. You know, there's still so much that we don't understand about this disease and the fact that it might have long-term neurological effects that one can't 
sort of register at this moment. So I think it does matter. You know, you combine what it is just dispositionally to be 15 or to be 20, you know, in a sense of kind of invincibility in that moment mm -hmm. and, you know, risk taking and all of that, that then becomes calibrated into things like, you know, insurance, auto insurance. And then the fact that they're told that they're low risk for the COVID infection. So I think that's exactly right. There's also a technology piece here that's new. You know, at this point, iPhones are old technology and they're using things like TikTok and, and new kinds of technology to, to gather together. But I also think there's something about generation here that's worth dwelling on that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that we've left them, and I'm borrowing a little bit from my friend, Nancy Cantor, who's the, the vice chancellor of, of the University of Rutgers at Newark, you know, this idea of inheritance, we've given them a very shallow, empty, you know, empty bag of gold, right? really just a weak inheritance and, and such, you know, so they're burdened in the United States and to an extent in the UK with significant debt. They don't have great prospects for jobs and for other possibilities. And so I think why now is also an answer to that question has been the very important organizing and narrative framing around really stunted future possibilities for people of this particular age um, and their real awareness of that. I mean, the great mythology, one of the great mythologies of American, and I'll use that explicitly, of, you know, America is that children do better than their parents. And there's always an upward trajectory in social mobility and all of these things. And it's entirely clear that that's not the case. And so part of the why now is that as well, you know, we'll, we'll need some research, I guess, to tell us for sure, but let's give a little bit of credence to the fact that people have been, I'm going to say in quotes on lockdown. I don't like to use that phrase because of its kind of carceral implications, particularly in the U S but, you know, maybe bored or unemployed and have time on their hands. I mean, we know from the civil rights movement that the activists were the, the young people, they were, you know, high school students, sometimes college students, they can bear not the, the brunt of police brutality, but the sort of punitive implications of what that might mean in some cases as well. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that we've seen this demographic acting around the climate crisis too here. But it, it's interesting that climate crisis didn't produce the kind of eruption of anger and criticism and the demand for a different world. And it's very, it's very interesting to me to think that the struggle against racial hierarchy, racial inequality, and these discrepancies in so many areas of policy and government have become a vehicle for imagining a different future. Um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you, there, there's also this, you know, let's not forget the simultaneity of this all. So, you know, you and I are old enough that both as individual citizens, but also as scholars, that there was all of this work about television and the power of television and radio to galvanize yeah. national communities. And, you know, to have everybody, sort of everybody, many, many bodies in their homes with nothing to do but consume media or read media altogether is the closest I think that we've been as a global community of political actors to listening, all listening to the Queen's speech or all listening to some political performance. Mm. And in this case, the political performance are in the United States, the utter collapse of the nation state as an organization that can be trusted and relied upon to deal with a public health crisis. And then on top of that, you know, the rising authoritarian of police authorities. And, and so it's, 
everyone looking at that at once, I think, is not to be underestimated. Well, I mean, earlier on, you talked about about how little we know about the disease itself and how it's really premature to be making definitive statements about its etiology and its consequences and so on. And our government here, you know, had this uh, focus group tested slogan that they were going to follow the science. And I'm sure that that sounded good for a while. But it's clear here that the problem of interpretation is not one that you can dispose of so easily. And I suppose thinking about the limitations of what we know and thinking about having to operate in a kind of environment where we can't know things and we have to learn to function without those definitive answers. I was thinking about the idea that some people looking at these patterns really do seem to think that the bodily truths of racial difference are somehow, in the context of this virus, about to be disclosed. That all those things they've been hunting for for hundreds of years are going to suddenly become clear and visible. You know, it might be vitamin D, it might be vitamin K, some epigenetic thing, the sort of racial magic of pre-existing conditions or obesity. So I'm, I'm thinking a lot about about that hunger, really. I don't know if you uh, agree. That hunger to make the body speak the truths of its racial difference at last and using COVID as a kind of frame through which that truth can be finally extracted and placed on public display. Yeah, I think, of course, thinking about this quite a lot. I mean, part of it is just the the hunger to try to figure it out. Mm. And what we know from the, the historical record of prior pandemics and epidemics is that the turn to racial biology always seems like the shortcut, you know, that it's the the sort of easy answer. So, you know, whether that was in the early 20th century saying that it was sort of immigrants Mm -hmm. um, who brought disease with them, or whether that was saying with the emergence of HIV AIDS that it was, you know, people of Haitian descent and homosexuals. And so the way that early forms of data around differentiation become race science effectively is a is a pattern that happens again and again. And in this moment, of course, we have, distinct from other moments, these large databases of genetic data, you know, that allow people to test out fairly easily their desire to, you know, say something about why it's the black body. I do wonder, I mean, going back to the initial, the question with which we began, if, how do I want to say this? I was actually quite surprised by how quickly journalists, and this is in the U.S. context, I don't know if it was the same in the U.K., but journalists, op-ed writers, reporters of various types, people just speaking in the public sphere, learn to take up a language of kind of preconditions that was about inequality and about structural issues and, and racial issues, whether or not people believed it or it was compelling. But to me, that seemed like quite a sea change. I was actually quite surprised that scholarship, lots of scholarship, you know, mine, yours, those people that we've been working with for a long time have been able to to change that that sort of discourse. And so, you know, I guess to the question, why now or 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 how are these things articulated, that one might think about the, you know, what I call in my Black Panther work, the social health frame, right. you know, how that frame was mobilized to explain quote unquote racial health disparities for COVID in the US and among as you call it, their BAME populations, which I find fascinating, uh, you know, how that kind of intervened early on. So one of the things I've been interested in in the quick turn to 
genetic data and the study that's being done, one of the bigger studies, uh, that's an international study, is this idea of the outlier. So I've been interested in mm. that part of what, what some of these studies are trying to, to look at is actually, you know, there are some that are saying, is it is APOE a factor, vitamin D metabolization, you know, a factor. But there are this, these kind of outlier studies that are, you know, the question is, who are the people who are otherwise healthy that succumb to COVID-19? So I'm quite interested in thinking about that as a kind of racialization process. And what is the racialization of the outlier? And is the, the outlier going to be in our kind of scientific imaginary you know, the strong upper middle class jogging daily European American guy in London or New York City. And like, you know, how in the world do we explain that this could happen to them? And thinking about the potential of, in those particular studies, as white racialization as a way of of surprise, a kind of surprise, you know, surprise of succumbing to disease. So as much as I'm interested in the the continuation of the trail that we've been on for certainly the last 15 years with everything supposed to have a genetic predisposition or some kind of genetic valence. I think we should also be mindful of the kind of new forms of racialization that will likely happen uh, in this moment as well. Mm, yes, absolutely. And I mean, I know, you, you know, it connects up really with the fact that the particular cabal that run our country at the moment are very wired into the fantasy of you know, forking over all our data, organizing it all into one system. And at the moment, you know, selling it off to Palantir or for a pound or whatever it is. Maybe I'm naive. I don't think they know what they're going to do with it even. I think that doesn't bother them. I think Palantir is an interesting intervention because an interesting company because I don't think it's ever returned a profit yet, which is not to say it won't do that in the future. So I think this whole question of data, the role of data, the politics of data, you know, it's interesting when this so-called BAME report that was being um, published last week, what they did when they began to be concerned that world events code for responses to the murder of George Floyd were, were going to intervene in the politics of COVID at home in its relationship with minority ethnic and black communities, they severed the parts of the report which dealt with structural inequality, which dealt with the history of health disparity over long periods of time, the more qualitative part, the sections which included responses from over a thousand organizations, and they published the data. They published wow. the data on its own without any attempt to explain how it, it might be interpreted, without any attempt to show what was going to be uh, the outcome of that encounter with the data I, I thought that was I thought that was interestingly symptomatic you know not least of course because when you look at that data when you look at it you see that the biggest association the biggest association as a risk factor is really age and that the obesity connection seems at least on the basis of this data to be age related so it's not a simple picture at all but age is absolutely in fact much more then the public discourse has been able to identify the biggest question of risk. Compared with people in their 20s and 30s, those in their 40s about three and four times more likely to die, those in their 50s about nine times more likely to die, and those 60 to 64, my age category, about 19 times more likely to die. So, so I think that maybe one of the things you're picking up on 
is also going to be related to age. And I've been really shocked, actually. I've been really shocked at how the disposability of the aged, of the post-working populations, has been just sort of assumed as, you know, another instance of life unworthy of being lived, if I can use that phrase and apply it here. So I think there's there's another whole layer to this. And it's interesting that when I think of the Extinction Rebellion protests that we had last year, the demographic slices of those activists were all the under 20s and the over 60s, you know. So here again, we see this particular kind of, I won't call it a polarization, there's a, there's a possibility of a, a different conception of, of where political action takes place that's, that's signaled in that demographic pairing. Maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I do think there's something there that's of interest. It doesn't sound optimistic to me at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that that this point about disposability is, you know, that will be, I think, one of the light motifs of this moment, sadly. And it's been interesting because so much of the conversation around generation has been, you know, about wealthy kind of baby boomers and the sort of post 60 demographic as being engines for capital in some ways. I mean, not in the workforce, disposable income, you know, those were the ones who were, were the kind of successful generation, even as ones that followed them maybe were not so successful. You know, gerontology as important field of scientific research in part because there were people who wanted to fund it and there were sort of people of value to whom the science would yield benefit. And so I've actually been I think a little bit more, I think, surprised by the sort of generation, the, the sort of kind of almost universal disposability of, of elderly people, of the aged. But I think that what we'll see is, of course, that there are different cultural manifestations or cultural understandings of, you know, in my community, you know, elders are sacred people in our community. You know, they're in some regard the least disposable because they are the most wise and, and have the most to, to offer in so many ways. So I think that there will be a reckoning, you know, not just around the a kind of generational killing off, frankly, but but also that there are real there's real variance in how different communities think about their their elders. Yeah, absolutely. And I think here too, a lot of the younger black activists are very aware that in making the decisions they've made to go and organize in public and protest in public in the way they have, they're very, very mindful of not wanting to carry the risk of infection back into their own communities and put their elders at risk. So I do really recognize what, what you're saying there. I mean, I know you've written a lot in the past also about Afrofuturism and that. And I wonder I wonder if there's a way in which this will help stimulate the possibility of reimagining the future in a different way in a different configuration. Oh, I think so, absolutely. I, I think if we, you know, the seed of Afrofuturism for me that often gets forgotten about, well, there's two seeds. One is the kind of technology piece as, as that I think has, for me, always been really important. But there's the dystopia piece. I mean, there is, you know, the, the power of Afrofuturism has been about being from communities in communities that daily, generationally, often, chronically face uh, you know, execution being annihilated. And so out of that, how does one create or imagine anything, you know? And to me, that is the miracle of it, that to be from a tradition of people who have not only been chattel, but who have been the always disposable demographic. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's it's a sort of paradigm for imagining, mm -hmm. but it also is there's something quite, it, it's sort of, it is, it's what we do. 
it's what we do. I mean, the world is, you know, inequality, racism is sort of segmented into mm. kind of this edifice. And every day people get up in small acts of hope and small acts of futurism. And so we're at a moment now where those small acts can be big acts and can be big gestures and transformative gestures. But, it, you know, the backdrop of that is Black loss, Black death, Black suffering. And Afrofuturism has always been not quite the dialectic, but the, the sort of friction against that. So yes, and of course, I guess I would say. Not that this is a particularly kind of distinctive window, but that the window is always there, given that the conditions of extinction and of, of death are always there. Mm. I mean, that's that's right, I'm sure. I suppose I think the only thing I'd add to that is that this outcome, this incredible planetary moment has been generated out of absolutely nothing political. I mean, political in the sense of, of government and, and so on. It's come, it's it's a cultural phenomenon. And I think people don't even want to imagine that that was still possible. So for me, the shock and the magic and the beauty of this moment is one that really relates to the power of culture. That's something that, you know, the people on the right in the last couple of decades have understood much better than others. And I think maybe maybe this is a moment where we can see that there are things to learn from rethinking the question of culture in this in this situation. Yeah, no, I, I, I take that. I credit that point. I would say that maybe what made that possible, though, was not not that there was no kind of politics in the, but that politics completely collapsed. Right. Right. So it's not, you know, when you like in the context of the United States, when there is no state authority or state, you know, moral or otherwise to which one can appeal, yeah. then you you must, you know, the culture turn must occur. Yeah. Well, that's it as as well, unfortunately. So thank you, Stormzy, and everyone else who's been working so hard to make these struggles meaningful to younger people in ways that those of us whose work is really about publishing things have really failed to do. Alondra, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this very rich, generative conversation. Perhaps, you know, in another month or so, we can check in and update and see how things are looking from there. I'm really, really grateful to you for making the time and for being so generous. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue soon. As do I. Let's do it again. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.